but um, I've got it coming. <laughs> and it's been a week of examination, very thankful for that, a week of examination in my own heart. Because we never read the Bible, you know, um, without getting under the authority of it. Uh, We don't read it profitably if we just read it as though it were some other book. But it's there for us to be under its authority, and that applies to me as well. So in 1 Timothy chapter 3, um, verse 1, it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. The Apostle has been addressing various relationships here in the church and giving directions on certain aspects of order in public meetings. Um, He's written to men and urged them to take leadership roles in prayer. And next, he addressed the women in the church and he gave direction regarding biblical authority and how it should be practiced. And he ties his argument. Last Sunday, we viewed those verses there. Uh, He ties his argument to the first pair in the garden and the circumstances surrounding the created order as well as the fall into sin. And now he begins to speak of certain positions of authority in the church, particularly the offices of pastor and deacon. And in these verses right here, we'll see uh, something of the office of pastor, something of the calling and character of a pastor, something of his home life, something of his experience and his reputation. They're all contained in these verses here. So first, the office of an elder or pastor, verse 1. It's a trustworthy statement. He says, that is, it's true, it's worthy of being believed, it's reliable, it's not to be doubted, it's trustworthy. And it suggests that what is about to be said has weight to it. And it's important, unquestionably true. Trustworthy statement, and that is, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work that he desires to do. If any man aspires, that tells me right there that it's not the place of a woman. He doesn't say if anyone, he says if any man aspires. 
It's for males. And as you read through here, you see those pronouns, he and his, not she and hers. Um, The previous chapter, we spoke about the woman and her role in the church. The apostle does not allow her to teach or to take authority over a man. Her place, her role, her sphere is in the home and not as a leader in the church. Nonetheless, we don't deny the woman the ability to share something in the meeting or to offer prayers. Or I have uh, multiple times been encouraged by things that women have said, and they've been almost prophetic. But to stand in the role of a teacher and to exercise authority in that regard to fill a pulpit and so on does not fall to a woman but to a man. If any man aspires to the office of overseer. And here we discover that it is an office. It's a recognized position of authority in the church. Now let me give you a list here of modern day positions in churches not necessarily true churches, but in churches. You have archbishops, diocesan bishops, archdeacons, deans, canons, minor canons, chancellors, curates, vicars or vicars, parish councils, commissaries, surrogates, proctors, and clerks. I've never heard of those offices, but they're offices in someone's church. Then there is the world of senior pastor and lead pastor and executive pastor and preaching pastor and youth pastor and minister and reverend and cleric and worship leaders and song leaders and youth leaders and children ministries leaders and evangelistic team leaders, all of those are positions of some degree of authority in someone's church. I'm thankful that the Bible is a little simpler than that. It offers two offices in the church, recognized offices in the church, and that is the one of elder and the one of deacon. And um, the interchangeable titles the Bible uses for the same position. Some verses might use bishop or shepherd or pastor or elder or as in today's text in my version, overseer. And they all represent the same position, basically of a pastor. And there is an element of superintendence included in all of that, of rule, of oversight. Um, There are verses that use that word rule, the elders that rule well. And another verse says, those that have charge over you in the Lord. Those are Bible terms, not my terms. And so there is an element there of superintendence and rule and oversight that is, that's connected with the office of a pastor. We would say here in our congregation that plurality of elders is desirable, and it's biblical. 
there are words using the terms of elder that are in the plural form, overseers, as in Philippi. It says, it says in, in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. There were more than one in Philippi. And Paul told Titus in chapter 1 and verse 5, appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And it was the practice of the early church in Acts 14 when they had appointed them elders in every church. And Paul told the Ephesian elders, he said, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And so here's this idea of plurality of elders. It's desirable. Um, if you have more than one pastor, you have more than one viewpoint. You have uh, varying emphasis in sermons. You have one man's weaknesses being covered by another man's strengths. You have, it's beneficial in so many ways for the congregation. It's beneficial for the elders to have more than one. Um, it's lonely whenever conflicts arise to be the only elder. Um, counsel can be sought of from other men outside of the church, of course, and often is. But uh, to have one that is an elder in the church with you, aware of the circumstances and all of the people involved, it's a very good benefit. And so multiplicity of elders, I think it's biblical and beneficial. And there's some recognizable element of a divine calling for an overseer, an elder, a pastor. I read to you that verse out of Acts 20, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So there's an element there. You only have as many pastors as God gives the church. You don't take, um, you don't take resumes. You don't take applications for a pastor that way. Um, the modern example in in some churches of a pulpit committee being assembled, they go out, begin to visit churches here and there, and they find someone they like, and they basically steal him away from a church that he's already pastoring. I don't support that method. I think God raises up men, most often from the congregation itself, but not always. I'm here not as a result of having come from the ranks of the congregation. I came from Illinois, as you're all aware. Bob came from Kirksville also. But most frequently, someone is raised up from among the congregation and becomes an elder. There's a consensus among the people that God has His hand on this man. And there's a sense that it, he's not just a product of some scholastic system. He hasn't just gone to seminary and made himself a pastor. God has, through the Holy Spirit, made him an overseer. I believe that's the biblical way. And that's the best way. That's the safest way. So there's a recognizable element of a divine calling here. But that 
calling is also coupled with a desire to shepherd God's people. No one is pushed into the position of an elder that doesn't have a desire, in a sense, within his heart, that God is wanting me to do this, and I myself want to follow God in this capacity. The word aspire is used in the NAS. I don't know what some of the other versions use. I believe desire is used in some versions. If any man desires the office of overseer. So there is a longing there, a certain desire for the work. And while we would say there's a certain desire for the work, the Lord, uh, through the Holy Spirit, places that persistent, recurring desire in the heart to preach the gospel and to tend to the needs of God's people. It is regarded as one evidence, but not the evidence. There needs to be more than desire. There are a lot of men that are in the position of pastor simply because they want to be there. There's a desire on their part of some a vain ambition. Who knows, there could be a list a mile long of reasons why someone would want to be a pastor. Um, Some might think that it's just a good job. I was told by a man one time, he said, after all, you only work one day a week. There are some that have that idea, that mindset. Here's a good direction for me to go. I can't do this. I'm not skilled in that. And so I could be a pastor. I could go to a seminary and get a degree and become a pastor. They make a good salary and they only work one day a week. And so that might be for me. Well, there's a man who's got a desire. He's got an ambition for what in God's eyes is a very high calling. But God hasn't put him there. And it's, it's um, surprising, maybe it shouldn't be so surprising, that the average stay of a pastor in a church now is two and a half years. A man is there with the congregation for two and a half years before, as I stated, he moves up. A pulpit committee arrives, likes what they see, offers him, makes an offer. He comes, pulls out his best two sermons, three sermons, preaches them. The crowd, the congregation, yeah, I like this fellow. And so they give him a call and he comes and then they sit down with the committee. This is how it goes. And they negotiate back and forth. I need this health care or I need this pension and I need this much money and well, we'll give you this and you, you, can, take, you can compromise on that and what do you say? Okay. And then it's on for two more years. That's not the biblical way. A man who's a pastor lays down his life for the congregation. He has no other aspirations. He doesn't plan on going somewhere else. And it's not to say that God doesn't have more work for him someday, maybe somewhere else, but that's not the goal. It's not a business. It's not that kind of an effort. The Bible tells us it's a fine work that he desires to do. It's a good work. It's not just a job. 
It's beautiful, it's worthy, it's valuable, it's virtuous to be a pastor. And yes, there are hard times, and yes, it is work, but the Bible calls it a fine work. And a man is blessed, whoever God has put in that position. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 1, they are workers together with God. And any time a man is a worker together with God, it's a fine job that he's got. I say it reverently, but God is my employer. He put me in this place. I have felt that from the bottom of my heart, and I wouldn't be here now if I didn't have that sense about me that God has done it. And when God has done it, I can't leave until He tells me. Not that I would want to, but He's the boss. That's the way that it works. Jesus is my superintendent, and the Holy Spirit is my foreman. Go here, do this, do that, direction. And the Bible's my blueprint. And I'm building a church. We call it edification, don't we? That's building up. I'm building up a church. And so we've got all of this divine order put above me. Jesus is called the chief shepherd. I'm just a shepherd. Angels are in my crew. In Revelation chapter 19 and verse 10, when John fell at the feet of an angel to worship him, that angel said, don't do that, I'm a fellow servant of yours. So these are the realities, the spiritual realities, and a worker with together with God. Now I said it is a work. The Bible declares it that. It's a fine work, but it is a work. That is, there is labor, there is effort, there is toil. Those are the realities involved in it. It's true. And others far more than myself. I can see other men. I see other men filling positions in churches. And I marvel at the amount of work they're able to do. It would crush me. But some men, God has filled with His Spirit and given a um, a sense of vision and a sense of strength. They are oxen that bear heavy loads. And it mar- I'm, I marvel at it. The work that they're able to do and accomplish. Planting churches, missionary endeavors. This thing and that thing. And God blesses that for them. But not every man is the same. And God isn't calling every man to that. But... He does call us to work. It's a work. In 2 Corinthians 11.27, Paul said, I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights. There are some sleepless nights involved in the ministry if a man is a true shepherd. He says, apart from such external things, there are external things that a man has to endure as a shepherd. But that's not the worst of it, he says. There is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Sometimes the biggest burden is simply concern. I'm concerned about this or that, this one or that one. 
He goes on to say, who is weak without my being weak? And who is led into sin without my intense concern? Those are some of, some of the realities of being a pastor and the work that's involved in it, um, some of the labor involved in it. A shepherd, as one of the other synonymous terms is with pastor, is called to feed the flock, to lead the flock, and to defend the flock. That's what a pastor does. He gives his life for that. He is willing to impart himself on that level. If not, he needs to find something else to do. Because that's the God-given task of a shepherd, an overseer. I'm talking about the office here at this point. I'm talking about the work of a shepherd. Peter says in 1 Peter 5 and verse 1, I exhort the elders among you to shepherd the flock of God among you. Remember, Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep. Shepherd the flock of God among you. And then he says, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, no one's making you do it, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge. The shepherd's not one who's a bully. He's not one with a whip. He's not one who's a driving man. He operates out of love. He doesn't lord it over. He doesn't rule or oversee with a heavy hand but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So here is this work of shepherding the flock. Um, To the Thessalonian church, the Apostle Paul said, We request of you, brethren, you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very very highly in love because of their work. There's a certain amount of work involved in diligent labor. And it's awkward for me to speak of that kind of thing here, but it's in the Bible and it's it's in our text even today. He's, he told Timothy a little bit later on in chapter 5, the elders who work hard at preaching and teaching. If anyone has ever tried to fill a pulpit, you know something about that. Um, there is some work involved in preparing something that is hopefully worthy of being listened to and is is um, hopefully food for the souls of people. So the Bible tells us that he's, it's um, a fine work that he desires to do. He's got his heart set on it. There's, there are multitudes of unholy, um, dishonorable, and unworthy desires in this world. And there are occupations that are not honorable, They're not innocent, they're not virtuous, and they ought not ever to be desired. But here is one in the words of the Bible 
that is desirable. He desires to do it. So that's the office. Now we're going to move quickly through some of the character um, characteristics here of the elder. Because there are many of them, we won't be able to talk a lot about each one, but we'll say a little bit of something. In verse 2, we see that he must be above reproach. Now, that's among those of the world, I think, as well as those in the church, he should be, there should not be anything blameworthy in regard to his life and his dealings. Um, the world is a poor judge of doctrine and of motive and of all things spiritual. And they have to be a poor judge of that because they are dead spiritually. Um, the world is worldly minded. But all things considered, it can very well be an accurate judge of someone's character. Um, the world can see through a, a hypocrite, a false person, and the world can see bad motives in someone's life. They can understand and recognize those things. And the leaders of the church are to be recognized by the world, at least, as being honest and sincere and trustworthy and upright in regard to their lives. The world frequently slanders the Christian, but slander is something that's not true. They should never have something that's true about a man and be able to pin that on him and blame him as a result. The life of the overseer should be, should be above reproach that way. Now, it does not mean perfect. If an overseer had to be perfect, you wouldn't have one. You could never find a man qualified who's perfect. But there's no just cause to accuse him of any wrong dealings. Next we see that he's to be the husband of one wife. Literally a one-woman man. I understand that to mean not a polygamist. Only one wife. Um... Some hold a really strict view on that qualification right there. Some say that a man who's lost a wife, who's died, and he's a widower, he can't remarry. That would make him a man of two wives, not just one wife. I don't hold that view. There are some that say a divorced man can never be a pastor. I also don't hold that view. I believe there's biblical reason for a man to be divorced. And if there's biblical reason for that, then there's got to be um, a, an exception to that here in this portion. Uh, there could very well be other disqualifying factors in, in regard to someone who's divorced that would um, keep a man from being an elder. But I don't think that um, this verse right here, the husband of one wife, is that. He's to be temperate. That is, not overindulgent. He's to be moderate, restrained. 
Uh, you don't want a pastor who's known for excesses in any area, this or that. He is to be prudent. That is, self, self-controlled and dis- discreet. Uh, these, are, these, verse, these words here in these verses um, might be translated differently depending on what your version is. But um, I think the King James uses the word sober there for prudent. Uh, that would be sober in his spirit, in his mind. Then he's to be respectable. Um, that literally means orderly and of good behavior. He's to be hospitable. And that doesn't just mean having people over for meals or having people stay in his home. I think it goes further than that. I think it means that um, as a pastor, there needs to be a sense of approachability to the congregation. This man is warm enough that you can go and talk to him. I hope that's the case here um, with myself. He needs to be an open man, an open door. You, you need to be able to have easy access to the pastor and not put off because he's too busy or too hard to talk to. Hospitable. He needs to be able to teach. The last part of verse 2 that is, he can use words as tools and be an effect and effective communicator. After all, when your subject is the Bible and the Lord Jesus Christ, you want to, as his employee, be able to speak of him in terms that others can understand. It does no good to have such a vocabulary that people say, what did that what was that statement? What did that mean? Should be able, I hope, um, you should be able to understand the way in which I communicate. And even the younger ones could at least get something out of a sermon that I would preach. Sometimes I feel as though I confuse issues when the verse is a difficult verse. Um, uh, sometimes it's easy to come away after speaking on a hard topic to say, I think I probably just muddied the waters. But most of the time, by the grace of God, I hope that you can come away with something for your soul, able to teach. Now, a woman, we see, is prohibited from teaching in the previous sermon and the verses that we looked at there. But here the one who's an overseer, a pastor, he needs to be able to teach. There's got to be some gifting there. And uh, sometimes a man is disqualified on that ground right there. He might be. These other things that we've looked at up to this point, but when it comes down to it, he's a very very, um, confusing communicator. Verse 3, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, that is, not a drunkard. Where is the temperance then? That would be a failure on that level. And where is clear thinking if a man is addicted to wine? He doesn't have his wits about him a lot of the time. 
you don't want, it's easy to see, you don't want that in, in um, the man who is, you know, is the pastor of your church. And not pugnacious, that's an unfortunate translation of the NAS, pugnacious. You don't want, the King James I think uses the word brawler, but virtually it's a violent man. You don't want a violent man. For a pastor, he needs to be gentle. That comes out a little bit later on in this verse. And as I say, said before, the pulpit is no place for a bully. Uh, you can be a violent man, aggressively um, violent in the sense that your anger gets up when someone has something to question you on, or um, when you meet opposition, you get angry. There are men whose temperament is like that. They're violent by nature. And they couldn't be pushed and pushed and pushed until they would slam someone up against the wall or get their finger in their face or a shouting match ensues or any number of things like that, I think, falls into this category right here. You don't want a man like that who is violent. You don't want someone hard or harsh. And a guy can be that way in his style of preaching as well. Um, I know this is probably dealing with being with physical and confrontations and things like that. But a man can, be, can not be gentle in his preaching. He can say things um, in a very hard and harsh way. And uh, I believe that fits here in this category as well. Not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable. That is, not quarrelsome. He's not argumentative. He doesn't go around picking fights. He's a peacemaker not a troublemaker. You don't want your pastor to be that. And as we're reading through here, you can see that these, these characteristics apply to everybody, really, but especially to the one um, that would be a, an overseer, a pastor, an elder. So you don't want someone who's quarrelsome, argumentative. Now, to offset that, that doesn't mean you want a spineless man in the position of pastor. You want a man who stands up for the truth. You want a man who stands up and defends the congregation or the church or the cause of the gospel. There's a difference there. Um, so you don't want a spineless pushover. You don't want someone who has no nerve. But on the other hand, you don't want a guy who's an arguer or, or quarrelsome. And I cite 2 Timothy 2.24, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. And correcting his opponents with gentleness, it says there in that context. Then not a lover of money, that is, not seeking to profit or gain at the expense of others. And some, in the, in the experience of 
bringing on pastors, there is a negotiation process that goes on. I'll do it. I'll be a pastor of this church for this much money, this salary. And salaries are negotiated as well as packages. Um, I need this retirement. I need this health care. I need this and that. And there are those who's, who launch out into the work of the ministry because they see it as a way to move up and make money. Pastors make good salaries, especially these guys who have doctorate degrees and things like that. Some churches won't consider a pastor at all unless he's a doc has a doctorate degree or a seminary degree of some sort. But I can honestly say the men that I've benefited most in all of my walk that have been the the most help to me as a Christian and as a pastor are not men with degrees, seminary degrees and and uh doctorates things like that. Verse 4, he must be one who manages his own household well. A, a good manager of his household says with dignity, keeping his children under control with all dignity. You should be able to look at the pastor and the experience of his, past, of his family life and it ought not to be a shambles. Um, his children ought to be well managed and under control. Um, after all, the church is likened to a family in the biblical analogy. Um, we're brethren, um, and the terms are are very similar to a family. Um, the older men, the older women. Uh, the younger men, brethren, sisters, fathers, so on. Those terms are used in regard to the Bible. And when we are called to care for God's church, which is at the end of verse 5, the church of God, we as pastors need to have our own homes in order as well. Verse 5, if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Then in verse 6 and 7, we see something um, maybe unusual in regard to elders from the rest of the congregation, or at least maybe in a heightened sense, and that is he's a target of the devil. Every pastor is a target of the devil. The devil is an opportunist. He takes advantage of opportunity and he exploits weaknesses. That's his job. We have verses that warn us about that. Do not give the devil an opportunity. What does that mean? It means don't leave the door cracked open. Bad guys come in when the door is cracked open. Keep it shut tight. Keep it locked. Keep it bolted. Keep it barred. Don't give the devil an opportunity. He's an opportunist. He's particularly focused on pastors. Strike the shepherd and the sheep scatter. He can, he can take a congregant down and, and people are, are affected and made sorrowful. He can take a pastor down and a church is destroyed, vanished. 
the sheep scattered. There are people that give up the faith when they see things like that happen. What's the use? If so-and-so can be taken down so easily by the devil, what hope is there for me? What reality is there? Didn't he say this? Didn't he for years stand for that and teach this from the pulpit? And now, where is he? He's given up the faith. He's gone. The devil is an opportunist. And he's looking for weaknesses to exploit. That's why we have here in verse 6, he should not be a new convert. That is, not newly planted. That's literally what that verse what, what that word means right there. Not newly planted. The one who's newly planted, a new convert, is vulnerable. He's inexperienced. He's got plenty of weaknesses that God has not sanctified out of him yet. He's not wary enough, typically, because he's young. He's not ignorant of the schemes of the devil. I mean, he is ignorant. The apostle says we should not be ignorant of the schemes of the devil. But someone who's a new convert would have that tendency to be ignorant of the schemes of the devil. A new convert is not sufficiently suspicious of himself and of Satan. And so the door is left open. In view of that, I would say, pray for me as a congregation. That's the best thing you all can do for me. Pray for me. In your private times, in your prayer meetings, pray for your pastor. Because every pastor has a target on him. uh, The enemy of our souls. Pray for me that I would not be ignorant of his schemes. Pray for me that I would be sufficiently suspicious of myself and the devil. Pray for me that I would not leave the door open in any area. I remember it was a prayer that Bob had for me one time that that God would deliver me from every excess. That's a worthy prayer. Pray along those lines. I'm sure you can be creative. Uh, Anything that you would think I could be led astray by or in. Pray against that. So that is one area. We should not be new converts. Um, There are two areas of vulnerability, mostly, and I'll bring them out right here in closing. He says, not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Here is one vulnerability right there. Pride. Not conceited. Not puffed up. Not thinking more highly of himself than he ought to think. Pray against that. And I ought to be on guard against that. It's easy to see how a new convert is susceptible to that. being high-minded, being proud. And I used to think right here, um, the last part of that verse, not and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil, I used to think that that verse meant 
a new convert was susceptible, he would become proud and the devil would condemn him for that. But I don't understand that to be the meaning now. I understand it to be this meaning. A new convert is vulnerable to become proud, which is the same thing that condemned the devil. It is the same condemnation that caused the angel of light to become the diabolical individual more so than any other and more so than any other individual ever created pride pride is the sin that turned an angel of light into the prince of darkness and so not a new convert for that reason pride is a temptation and then for the second reason he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So the second vulnerability is in regard to his reputation in the world, Um, not just here in the congregation, but out in public. The people that I have to deal with day in and day out, they come across um, that I would have a good report that every elder should have a good report with those outside in the world. Outsiders, they're called here in the verse, with those outside the church. So I think this sums it up pretty good. He should be recognized in the community as a man of moral character and proper conduct. His business dealings should be honest and right. There shouldn't be anything shady or under underhanded that my neighbor or someone that I deal with can put their finger on. And I, I realize these things should be true about all Christians, but especially about the leaders. Non-Christians shouldn't be able to bring the charge of hypocrite against the pastor and be true. There could be a slander or something like that that's not true, and it often happens. But there should be nothing true about a bad reputation. Acts 22 speaks about Ananias. It says he was a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all. Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation. Demetrius, in 3 John verse 12, has received a good testimony from everyone. So as far as it relates to external behavior, even unbelievers themselves are compelled to acknowledge that the elder is a good man. Now you can contrast that with the sons of Eli in 1 Samuel 2. And Eli said to them, I hear of your evil dealings from all of these people. No, my sons, it's no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. Though they were priests, Eli's sons. And so that would be the contrast. And the Bible calls it a fall. 
so that he will not fall into reproach. Entrapped like a snare. And a damaged testimony, you know, it reflects on the man, it reflects on the church. I'd never go to that church. That man is a hypocrite. That's the pastor there. And then lastly, it it, um, brings a reproach on the name of our Savior. This guy represents Christianity. That's what that stands for. And so it's easy to see. These two areas then that make us most vulnerable, that is pride and reputation among outsiders. I want to read to you one portion here from the Bible that kind of sums it up, and then we'll just stop with that in Second, in First Thessalonians chapter two. See how many of these um, characteristics and things that we've been talking about so far. See how many of them show up in this portion right here, First Thessalonians two, beginning with verse three. He says, Our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others. Even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are our witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers." Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That pretty well sums up what he's been saying there in First Timothy 3. 